So I want to talk to you about the blood of Jesus and the power of the blood of Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrew 9.15. Hebrews 9.15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there may, must also, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For the testament is in the force after men are dead. For the testament is in force after the men are dead, since it has no power while the tester still lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without the blood. And so I feel like what the Lord is saying, I really want to concentrate and focus. I typically don't do a whole lot of line upon line teaching, but I thought this scripture sums up so much about the power of the blood of Jesus. So I wanted to focus on this because I wanted to, I think in the summary of it, I want to go line upon line. And I want to look at these words and I really want to expound on what it is that, that, that the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Because he says that Jesus was the mediator. He was the one that was in the middle between us and God. He came to reconnect us back to the Father. He's the one that stands between men and God to bring them together. And he goes on to say that he's the mediator of what? He's the mediator of this new covenant. This new covenant, this new agreement, this new um, covenant, it means that there is a new way, a new agreement that is a legal and binding document. And it's placed between these two that the mediator has now come to bring together. So there's got to be that agreement, that covenant. It speaks of an irrevocable decision which cannot be canceled anymore. It's actually commonly used as a legal term, as in, back in the, in the Greek, it's commonly used to describe a will and a, and a final testament of someone that, has, that knows they're about to die, but what they've done is they've gone ahead and they've signed their will, and everything is in that will that once they die, that will is then going to be activated. So he's made a covenant with us, and so therefore it goes on to say, by means of death, because there had to be the death of a testator in order for there to be an activated testament. The writer of Hebrew proceeds to give three reasons that the Messiah had to die. Number one, a testament demands a death. Number two, forgiveness demands blood. And number three, judgment demands a substitute. He laid all of this out in the Old Testament. He was very clear about how Jesus had to come so that we could be restored back to God. See, this blood tells a story. And even today, science 
has come so far that it actually tells the very story of the mediator that, that wrote the covenant, that designed the covenant, the will, his final will and testament that then had to be activated by his blood. And, and science tells us today that in order to, to find the father of a child, it comes through the blood of the father. You can tell which father and which child go together by the blood. Because the father, it is the blood, the father, he designs the blood that the mother then carries within her. Isn't that fascinating? So the very DNA from the father can be determined through the blood. So you can look at a whole row of people and you can take the blood of a child and you can say, all right, this one right here is the father. I can tell you who the biological father is because it's traced back to, or to the, uh, the baby, to the father, because it's traced back by the blood. You see, if Joseph had been the father of Jesus, then there would be no power in the blood. So in the womb of Mary, God and man became one. The Holy Spirit was taking the human condition and co-mingling it with his own blood, with the blood of the Father. Jesus was a forerunner. Jesus was a forerunner in this. It says in Hebrews that he was the forerunner. He's the only one in the Bible that's referred to as the forerunner. So he was born, he was part man, fully man, fully God. And he came as a forerunner to show us what it would be like to have that blood pulsating through us. Because what happens with the blood? What do you take on? You're taking on the nature of the Father. You're taking on... The image of the Father because the image is in the blood. Did you know that the name Adam means red? I believe that's just extra. I really believe it was because of the blood. That he took the dirt, he took what was created and he mingled it with his spirit his DNA, and he created him in his image. That commingling of the blood makes us righteous, and it makes us that pure and spotless bride. Furthermore, in this scripture, it says, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. I want you to think about that internal, that eternal inheritance because a lot of times people think when you talk to them about heaven or you talk to them about salvation, they think heaven as this distant thing that once they get there, they've arrived. But he's talking about an eternal inheritance that actually when you get born again, you get born into that eternal inheritance and you can access heaven from that point forward. 
So it's a realm that you now get to participate in. He said, listen, I'm not going to take you out of the world. I'm going to leave you in the world, but I want you, you're not to be of the world. You're a new creation. You are these new people because you've been born and you now have a, a new blood system. You have, you have been given an infusion, a blood transfusion, which has made you a new creation. Therefore, you have power over sickness and death and oppression and depression and tattoos. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> he offered himself through his eternal spirit and has become the author and source of eternal salvation. He has obtained an eternal redemption and enables men to receive the eternal inheritance. You have a new father, you have new blood, you have a new family, and you function in a new realm. See, the word says that the veil was torn when his, when his flesh was torn. So the veil was torn, his flesh was torn. When he got pierced, when Jesus was pierced in his side, what came out? Blood and water. Why blood and water? Do you remember the centurion and how shocked he was to see that? Because it was a birth canal. The centurion opened up the birth canal. What happens when a woman has a baby? Water and blood. Because it was, it was that place where the flesh was torn and what was coming out was the new creation, the new blood. We were covered by his blood. The blood of Jesus has the DNA of the Father in it. Leviticus 17.11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes the atonement. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Because there's life in the blood, and it is the very thing that covers us. And beloved, until we believe in the very power of the blood of Jesus, we will never be able to appropriate it in our lives. Reinhard Bonnke told a great story of how he was invited to a, um, uh, by a reporter to have a debate on the blood of Jesus with an atheist. And he thought, oh good, this will be fun. So he gets there with the atheist, and the atheist begins to challenge him on the blood of Jesus. And he said, you know, the blood of D Jesus was shed 2,000 years ago. But we still have so many people that are, that are um, you know, acting wrong. There's no revival. There's no, you don't see any, any worldwide transformation. And so he said, I challenge you, and I tell you that there is no power in the blood of Jesus. He said, it's proven. Look around you. Everything's not getting better. It's getting worse. And Reinhardt thought for a minute and he said, I would like to answer you. May I, may I answer you? And he said, yes, please. And he said, if I had soap and it was just sitting there next to me, would I be clean? 
if I worked at a soap factory and actually made soap, would that make me clean? He said, the thing about soap is that you have to put it on. You have to take it. You have to lather it on. You have to clean it. You have to take it and use it. You have to appropriate it. And he said it is the same with the blood of Jesus. You see, the first biblical reference to the sprinkling of blood is in Exodus 12.22. He gave us a very clear demonstration of what he was going to be doing when Jesus came. Do we have that one? Exodus 12.22. The Israelites were commanded to take a bunch of hyssop. It was when Moses was bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And it was the last curse that was on the land. The last judgment that was on the land, which was the killing of, of the firstborn children. And he, um, Moses went to everyone, and, and to all of those uh, Israelites, and he said, okay, here's what you have to do. You have to take the hyssop, and you have to take the basin of blood, and you have to take the blood of the lamb, and you have to take it and put it over the archway, the posts of your door. So that when the spirit of death comes, it will pass over your house. Now, had they left the blood in the basin, would it have worked? No. They had to actually appropriate the blood. They had to take, and there was an action that was required on their part, to take the blood and put it over the doorpost. Blood in a basin, beloved, does not get us where we need to go. Soap in a soap dish is not going to cleanse us. But we have to appropriate these things. I love how, the way he, he says it in the, in the New Testament, that we must be sprinkled. If Christ is Lord of our lives, then our doorposts, our heart, have to be sprinkled by his blood. And the sprinkling is not just for forgiveness, but it's also for protection. The blood of Jesus protects. I'm telling you, when we were there this weekend in Austin at the Capitol, there was a serious spiritual war going on. But we knew who we were. That we were covered by the blood of Jesus and all of the witches who were there, and trust me, there were more witches in that place than I've ever seen in my life, doing all of their voodoo and chanting, Hail Satan. We knew who we were because we were covered by the blood. And as they continued to chant around us and put curses on us, do you think that stuff even came near us? They don't have any power unless you believe they have power. Amen. Because the blood of Jesus is the most powerful source on the earth and nothing can come near you. No sickness, no disease. You will be what you believe. Amen. That's why he said you have to take this and you have to sprinkle this on your doorpost. 
There's also a sprinkling of blood mentioned in Exodus 24, 1 through 11. In this passage, God made a covenant agreement with Israel. He promised, if you will obey my words, I will be a God to you and you will be my people. So after Moses read the law to the people, they answered and they said, we understand and we will obey. So they agreed to the covenant of the Lord. Now, this covenant had to be sealed and it had to be ratified. Just like the covenant, the new covenant that we're in. But this covenant had to be ratified and made valid. so that, And that could happen only through the sprinkling of blood on it. So Moses did this. He takes a basin full of, of the blood of oxen. And, he's, and he takes the hyssop and he dips it in the basin. He sprinkles it the word of God and then he sprinkles the people. And then after this, he takes the elders up the mountain so that they can sit before God and eat with him. Come on! Then Moses, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders went up the mountain to meet God. And the Lord appeared to them. Now, now I want you to get a vision of this. The Lord appeared to them coming down a sapphire stone walk. These men saw a table spread before them. And the scripture infers that with ease, comfort, and no fear of judgment, they sat in God's presence and ate and drank with him. Now, remember before how scared they were? They were like, no, no, we don't want God. But the sprinkling of the blood wiped away the fear to approach God. You know, as a, as a, as a pastor and as a prophet, I can tell you the number one condition of humanity that keeps them from intimacy with God is that the, uh, it's, a, it's a fear to approach God. That they don't really know, we don't know how to receive love from him. Because we still believe that we're unworthy. But the blood, the sprinkling of this blood will actually help us to approach God. This to me is simply amazing. They didn't fear eating, eating, eating with God. Sapphire stone, sapphire stone. Think about that. How cool is that? <laughs> so how do you sprinkle the blood of Jesus? Number one, the blood is sprinkled on us by the spirit of Christ who dwells in us. Paul said to, uh, this of Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, a reconciliation through faith in his blood. See, many believers are condemned out of the wonderful experience of the Lord's table because they do not come to the blood and faith. Paul is saying, no wonder so many are sickly among you who are left weak. Why? Because we don't believe in the total victory of the blood of Jesus. We kind of think it's half and half. You know, we kind of sort of believe, but not really. And that's why he was talking about taking the blood. And if you don't take the blood in the right way, it will actually make you sick. Remember he said that? And a lot of people think 
And when, when he warns us not to drink the cup unworthily, this doesn't mean merely partaking of communion service after we failed in some way. That's not what it's about. I believe Paul is saying that we are to discern Christ's body properly. He's talking about coming to the Lord's table and drinking the cup as a symbol of his blood and believing in the power of the blood and understanding that, uh, the, that this is a force. There is nothing on the earth more powerful than a drop of this blood and this blood pulses through your veins. Come on. So when you begin to meditate on this good news, that no curse and no witchcraft and no generational curse, nothing that your ancestor did, nothing. When you begin to, when you declare the blood of Jesus over those things, that stuff is gone. And it's gone for good. Many believers are condemned out of this wonderful experience of the Lord's table because they do not come to the blood in faith. Paul is saying, no wonder so many are sickly among you and who are weak because you do not believe in the total victory of, the Christ, of Christ's blood. Number two, the blood of Jesus is sprinkled on our soul through apostolic preaching. When you hear Christ and his blood being exalted in the Holy Ghost preaching, you can know that the blood is actually being sprinkled on your spirit and your soul. And we know this because when Moses, what did he do? He sprinkled the blood on the word and he sprinkled it on the people. So he was saying that revelatory teaching that is sprinkled by the blood and your hearts that will open up to the wisdom of heaven, to the knowledge of God, and to this revelation that, that it will actually begin to transform you and your whole life will come into alignment with the truth of this reality. Hebrews 9.19 said this, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Hebrews 10.19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness or the freedom to speak, to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil. That is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So when we receive the word that is sprinkled with the blood, what does it do? It takes an evil conscience. It takes a mind that has not been transformed and it transforms it so that we are no longer functioning as, honestly, as illiterate Christians. Not knowing what day we're living in. Not knowing the truth of the word of God. Not being discerning. Every time that we receive and we hear and we give Holy Ghost anointed preaching, crying, Lord, give me all of your truth, we are being sprinkled with Christ's blood. So I encourage us tonight, don't 
plead the blood of Jesus. How many of us have heard that over and over and over? I mean, ever since I became a Christian, people are pleading the blood of Jesus. But we don't, we're not beggars. We're not. We don't need to plead it. We need to declare it. Because we walk in, in the full authority. He went to get the keys to death and hell. And we now can appropriate these things. When we are secure in the cleansing and the justifying power of the blood, that our conscience is no longer condemning. You can know that you are sprinkled. When you know that you, you don't feel that condemnation anymore, you know that you have received the sprinkling of the blood. Hebrews 10.22 says this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Your conscience does an evil work when it does not wake you or stir you to obedience to the gospel. That's what this is saying. It does evil when it unnecessarily condemns you, accuses you, and constantly reminds you how you failed God. But when you fully rest in the cleansing, the justifying power of the blood of Jesus, when you take command of your conscience in the spirit, your conscience is no longer an accuser, but rather it works properly. You understand the power of the blood and you get back under the power of the blood. You declare the power of the blood. You appropriate the power of the blood and you get up and you keep walking. Praise God for his foresight that we would be covered with such a glorious power for our protection and for our authority. A peaceful and purged conscience is a sign of being sprinkled by his blood. So my question to you tonight is, what does the enemy see when it looks at you? Does he see the blood? You know, the more that, I, that I've been reading about the blood, the more revelation that I've been getting about the blood, the more confidence that I have been growing in, in who I am in God. And, and, and now that I know and I understand... I look at disease and sickness and, and all of these things and if somebody doesn't get healed when I pray for them, I think to myself, what's happening? This is not normal. What's going on? And I go to the Holy Spirit and I'm like, tell me what's happening. There's got to be a key here that I'm missing because your blood is more powerful than that cancer. Than that tumor. I mean, we've been seeing some incredible healings here. Creative miracles like crazy. And 
I think it's all attributed to the identity of who we're, we're like, look at who we are. This is so cool. And it's not just, oh, some super pastor or evangelist that comes into town and is doing it. No, it's all of us. That's what's so great. Because this is for all of us.